Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people with kidney disease discover us. We really appreciate it. Now, on with the show. So today we're here to talk about BMI or body mass index and weight loss related to kidney disease and eligibility to receive or donate a kidney. So my name is Marlena. I use they, them, their pronouns, and I'm really excited to talk with you all today. So could you just share your name and pronouns and your connection to kidney disease? Carol Murray. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, and hers. My connection to kidney disease is my husband was diagnosed with full renal failure in May of 2015. And in June of 2019, I became his living donor and donated a kidney to him. That's wonderful. We're so excited that you're here. Hi, my name is Golnas Friedman. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. I am a transplant dietitian. I have been working with kidney transplant recipients and kidney transplant donors for almost 10 years now. And I just absolutely love both populations, and I find this to be a very rewarding position to be in. Hi, everybody. My name is Melanie. I go by she, her, and I have lupus nephritis. That is my connection to kidney disease. Um, I got lupus when I was 23. I'm now 27, and uh, the lupus attacked my kidneys. The kidneys went into failure, and now I'm a dialysis patient, currently doing peritoneal dialysis. To get started, Golnaz, could you explain what BMI stands for and how it's calculated? Um, This is a really great question because we hear that term BMI a lot. There's a lot of nuance to it. By definition, BMI, it stands for body mass index, and it's actually just the calculation. It's a ratio of uh, your weight to your height. So it's your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. And something to keep in mind is it's a ratio. It doesn't tell us about body composition. It doesn't tell us about how weight is distributed. So really, it makes a lot of assumptions in that, you know, someone who is 5'3 and weighs 130 pounds, two people that are 5'3 and weigh 130 pounds will have the same exact BMI, but may look completely different from each other. It has been correlated with things like uh, fat mass, right? But not in everyone. These are in big, big studies that look at hundreds of thousands of people, and these are trends that they find. So I think the biggest thing to remember about BMI is that it's a good screening tool because it's a very quick calculation with information that we typically have on people, their height and their weight, but it doesn't tell us about that specific individual and their specific characteristics. So in context of transplant, can you just tell us how and why BMI is used, especially since now we know it may not be perfect for the individual? BMI is typically used um, as a screening tool for both recipients and uh, donors. So I'll start with recipients. Um, Like I mentioned, BMI is really easy to calculate. And so typically when someone is referred for transplant, That's information that the transplant center can um, easily use to determine is that individual close to where that center likes to have their patients in terms of weight. And so um, I will say that there is no standard for what BMI each transplant center should use. So that is up to each individual transplant center of what weight they would like to accept for their recipients. 
Uh, with that said, you know, some transplant centers don't use BMI at all. Some transplant centers have an absolute contraindication, meaning if your BMI is above this, you absolutely cannot get transplanted. And then they also have a relative contraindication. So if your BMI is, you know, for example, between 35 and 40, then we may or may not be able to transplant you. And so, you know, um, I think what we've seen over the past several years is that a lot of centers are actually starting to move away from just looking at BMI and maybe looking at other parameters that will tell us about surgical risk and long-term risk after transplant. So the reason that centers use weight and have weight criteria primarily is due to surgical risk. So um, as you may or may not be aware, when a transplanted kidney is placed, it's placed in the lower abdomen. And that tends to be where many, not all, but many people carry a lot of their weight. So the more weight that is in that central region, that's we call it central adiposity, the more complicated that surgery becomes. Now the surgeon has to make a much bigger incision. There's a lot more tissue and fat they have to cut through. And therefore the person is at a higher risk of bleeding and infection and other actual surgical complications after transplant. Um, as you all know, our transplant recipients have to be on an immunosuppressive regimen, right? Medications that suppress their immune system so that they don't reject that kidney. Those medications also make it really hard to fight off any kind of infection that might arise. So if they get an infection from that surgical wound, which is likely if the wound is bigger, if they have to cut deeper, um, then their body can't fight off even a small infection because of the medication regimen that they're on. So that's the primary re reason is those short-term surgical complications. Now, there's also some evidence that there is some long-term complications. There are some studies that show that individuals with a higher weight at time of transplant may have a higher likelihood of um, delayed graft function, meaning they might require dialysis after transplant or that kidney not working or even higher rate of uh, mortality, meaning death. But those studies are actually kind of far and few. What we see is a lot of the long-term studies that are looking at transplant recipients at higher weights don't really support that anymore. And it's really those short-term surgical risks that are the concern. With donors, it's a little bit different. With donors, the central adiposity, that weight in the middle, has been correlated with a higher um, risk of developing diabetes or even high blood pressure or heart disease. And we know that high blood pressure and diabetes are the main causes of kidney disease in the general population. So for our donors, we wanna make sure that they have the lowest risk of developing diabetes or high blood pressure as possible, because we want them to live the longest, healthiest life they can with that single kidney. So weight is assessed in those terms for our donors. We wanna make sure that they don't have kind of a combination of risk factors for diabetes, high blood pressure, and therefore an increased risk of kidney disease. So it sounds like it's really all to try and protect both donors and recipients. Absolutely. It's about the safety of the donors, the safety of the recipients, and their long-term health. Thank you. I think that was a great explanation. Hi, Melanie. You are next in our questions. Can you just let us know how BMI has come up during your evaluation for a transplant? Oh. Trigger. <laughs> Honestly, I grew up being always a little bit overweight. And so BMI has always been a thing I've heard my whole life. And I always hated it because I would look at somebody 
my same weight and we looked so different because of our height, maybe our body. So then when it came down to being on the transplant list, um, the Miami Transplant Institute accepted up to a 37 BMI. And I was at a 37 BMI when I first became a PD dialysis patient. And they recommend you get on the list um, for a donor before becoming a dialysis patient. So that's what I was doing, right? And then when I see the surgeon, they were like, okay, 37, we're gonna accept you. They even like touched my belly. I told my doctor, I was like, listen, I carry all my weight in my legs. So please, you know, I promise I'm, I'm good. I'm good at the top. Became a PD dialysis patient and then I gained weight and my BMI went up to 40. And I would go to the nutritionist and I'd tell them, but my BMI is 40, but I, I'm still, I still look the same. Like you could touch my stomach. I, again, I carry it in my legs. I can't help that the dialysis is, is making me gain weight. I'm pumping sugar and calories into my body. That's the one thing at first when I heard that you have to follow a BMI, it's annoying because I don't meet that criteria. I can't save my own life. I, I hated it. But I understand because being at a healthier weight, it is better for this type of surgery, but I'm not going to lie. I still hate BMI. I wish they would either update it or something because it's not the same for everybody. But Gonzalez, have you seen this happen with other PD patients? Absolutely. I mean, Melanie, your story is absolutely unique to you, but unfortunately, it's that is one of the biggest things that's associated with peritoneal dialysis is weight gain that is really out of your control. So it really is hard. And I think, you know, I always tell the patients that I work with, like, you know your body best, right? And you're saying, I didn't notice a change in my body composition, right? Like my weight didn't go in my belly. I carry my weight in my hips and sides. And I think that's such an important point that you make, Melanie. And that's why BMI can be a screening tool, like what I mentioned earlier. But, you know, um, like at our center, we're really trying to move away from like using just that number on the paper and really laying eyes on the patient, right? So like if we had encountered your situation, what we might say is like, okay, so we've noticed that you've gained weight since we listed you, let's bring you back in, let's take a look. What we do is we'll take a measure around your waist and then we talk with our surgeons and we kind of look at the risks versus the benefits. And I think that's a really important thing to do because like you said, people can be at the same weight and same height and look completely different. So it's important. Thanks for sharing that. So Carol, was this brought up when you were evaluated to donate a kidney? It was when my husband first started the process to move towards the transplant list. I think that was in the fall of 2015. I went online at his center, his transplant center, and I filled out the questionnaire. And I like to tell people that I think the computer really laughed at me when I entered my weight and it calculated my BMI. But what came back was a little message that said, your BMI is too high. After weight loss, please reapply. And I kind of backburnered it at that point. My husband went through the process and he had a number of people that stepped up and he moved into kind of a stable phase at that time. And like Melanie, right, I've heard BMI and it's just this negative impacting thing because I too have always been on the heavier side. And then fast forward to June of 2018, my husband's condition continued to deteriorate and he was like, almost to the point where they were ready to put him on dialysis. Everyone else that had stepped up was disqualified for one reason or another. And I thought, 
maybe I just need to go through the process. We were at a clinic visit with his doctor and I asked his doctor, I said, what is the goal BMI? And I believe it was 32 was the max that my husband's center would take for a living donor. And my BMI was around a 38, 39. I was kind of bouncing in there. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I can do this or not, but for my husband, I was willing to give it a try. It was kind of like um, that part of no one else was available to do it. And the transplant list is so long for a deceased donor. And I knew he would be on dialysis for years. And his father had gone through dialysis and I just knew the toll that that would take on a body. So in June of 2018, I started my weight loss journey. Um, but yeah, the BMI, very intimidating. And I think to some degree it's um, almost psychological where you know you have this hurt, huge hurdle to get over. Um, but yeah, it was brought up and um, that's kind of where my story led me. So Goldness, are there any other tools that could access someone's physical health um, for a kidney transplant or for a donor? Yeah. And I will say just, you know, over the years and attending professional transplant conferences and hearing more and more that more centers across the country are starting to take that more holistic approach. And I think a lot of it is because one, we're learning more exactly like you said, Carol and Melanie, about some of the psychological impacts of just even using terminology like BMI and, and without having a conversation around it, right? And what that means for the individual. Um, but also because, like I mentioned earlier, we have more research supporting when it's appropriate to, you know, uh, deny somebody or um, uh, prolong the waiting time for transplant for weight and when it's really not appropriate. So um, in terms of actually looking physically at the body, one thing that uh, can be done is looking at how much weight is specifically, and this is for recipients, I will say, looking um, specifically at the that central adiposity. So um, something that we do is we take a measure of the waist circumference, but we actually look at something called a waist to height ratio. So compared to that person's height, how much of that weight is in the belly? And that again, goes back specifically to the surgical risk. But the other thing that we look at is the overall picture, right? In addition to weight, what other risk factors does this person present with? Do they, for example, have really, really low exercise tolerance or capacity, which we know is also related to poor post-transplant outcomes? Do they have long-standing uncontrolled diabetes, which can also be correlated with poor post-transplant outcomes? So we start kind of looking at the number of risk factors, right? What is, or what is the age of the recipient? How long have they been on dialysis? Some of these things that we know um, can can uh, result in poor outcomes after transplant. Then we say, okay, so it's not just the weight, it might be, it's, it's accumulation of all of these things that really might make transplant more harmful for this person than helpful. But we might have someone who's young, doesn't have all these other things, right? They may be pre-dialysis or have recently started on dialysis. They don't have 25 years of diabetes. They, you know, are live a pretty active lifestyle. And we say, okay, does it make more sense to put them on hold for five years to lose weight or transplant them? Because they don't have this accumulation of risk factors. So really taking that holistic approach of what is the benefit versus harm? So that is a lot of the conversation that we have in our selection committee is, okay, is it just one thing or is it several things that are adding up that are gonna make transplant potentially more harmful than helpful? 
for donors, I think it really goes back to looking at the overall health, right? So we know that there are people at a higher weight and a higher BMI that are very healthy, right? Healthy, right? Like in the terms that we use in, in healthcare, meaning like they don't have diabetes or prediabetes. Their blood pressure is well controlled. They eat well. They exercise regularly and they're in a larger body. Do they have the same risk of developing diabetes and high blood pressure as someone who already has maybe borderline um, high blood sugar or borderline high blood pressure and is, you know, has a more sedentary lifestyle, has room for improvement, right? Those are not the two the same thing. Those two people could be at the same exact weight and BMI, but their overall lifestyle is going to make a really big difference in their long-term health. So again, having that more holistic approach of what are the overall risk factors? And so that, again, we we have, you know, I, I guess if there's something I want everyone to know is transplant centers don't take these things lightly. We have really long multidisciplinary conversations about um, weighing these risks and benefits for both donors and recipients because it's life-changing for people, right? So we don't want to take these decisions lightly. So I'm glad to hear that there's this conversation around it. Regardless, both Carol and Melanie did need to lose weight. So let's kind of transition into that. Carol, could you just let us know what are some of the things that you did to get to this, the correct weight criteria to become your husband's donor? First thing that I did is I went to my family physician and I did a complete physical. So from head to toe, I had blood work done. They looked at blood sugars. We looked at blood pressure, everything that we've been talking about. And I knew that overall I was very healthy. My blood pressure was spot on, no indication of diabetes. And at that point, I had talked to my doctor about what would be the best possible way for me to lose the weight. And I needed to lose right around 65 pounds to hit my target. So pretty substantial amount of weight to lose. And what I decided on was um, kind of the keto. So low carb, no sugar, um, incorporated a little bit more exercise than what I had typically been doing. And it took me about eight months, but I was able to drop actually 67 pounds just to get below that cusp of where that BMI um, would rule me out. So did you find that difficult? Where were some of the struggles? When did you know that like you had it? I would say the biggest struggle was that it didn't seem to be happening fast enough. And I think in, in context, it really was happening fast, right? When we look at what is a healthy amount of weight to be losing per week or per month, it was coming off very quickly, especially in the beginning. Where it seemed like it wasn't coming off fast enough was at the same time that I was on my weight loss journey, I watched my husband continue to decline and inch ever closer to having to be put onto dialysis. And I just wanted to hit that target weight so we could begin the process because I knew even after I hit that BMI, there was still hurdles to go through. And I thought, if this isn't going to be me, I would rather know sooner than later. So it was that part of, yep, I'm losing at a healthy pace and trying to separate my weight loss journey from my husband's continued journey down his chronic kidney disease path and just being able to separate the two and know that, yep, just keep going, keep going and trying not to be deterred or give up. Uh, deep down, I also knew 
that I needed to do this for me. I knew for years and years that my BMI was, it was at an unhealthy level, right? So we talk about being slightly overweight, right? Or being, but when my BMI calculated, it calculated it at obese. So for me, it was doing this to move to donation for my husband. But I also knew that overall for my lifestyle at my age, it was needed just to secure um, a future of good health for individual. Same question to Melanie. Um, what were you What were you able to do to kind of help with your weight loss surgery? And were you able to get back onto the transplant waiting list? Yeah. So um, like I said earlier, PD dialysis made me gain weight. And after four months of being on PD, I had gained about like 15 pounds, knocked me off of the list. I was at 40 BMI. And I remember getting that phone call. And I was so frustrated and angry. Because I was like, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. I don't have blood pressure problems. I don't have diabetes. I'm perfectly healthy. The only, like, in, you know, for kidney patients, right? And I remember being so heartbroken. And it, I just felt like it wasn't fair. And I went to my nephrologist and I was, I, I, I even cried to her. I was like, I don't know what else to do. I've met with countless nutritionists. I've done the diet. I've done the exercise. I've put in the work. I barely eat because PD patients don't even eat sometimes. We probably eat one or two meals max a day. I was like, doctor, please, what can I do? What do you think about weight loss surgery? And then she says, I have no problem referring you to weight loss surgery. And I was like, okay, mind you, I had tried to do weight loss surgery or explore that years ago, but my insurance didn't cover it. And I was not about to spend $10,000 as a broke college student. No, thank you. <laughs> we can use that. <laughs> and um, I went to the nephrologist and she gave me the referral. And I, I saw the, the weight loss surgeon and, and he was incredible. The One of the best, one of the tops here in Miami, very well recommended. And the first thing he does is give you a seminar. And that seminar it was like an eye-opening experience because being big basically my whole life, you feel invisible, you feel not seen, and you feel not heard when people tell you like, yeah, I'm big, but I'm healthy. Like there's people that are thinner than me that are that have way more worse health problems. I didn't grow up being unhealthy. And he made it, he was like, the reason you are big is not because you're at home sitting and eating pizza and ice cream all day. Like if somebody were to see my lifestyle, they'd be like, how do you even do it? I constantly am going out. I'm constantly in motion. I try to eat good every single day. I eat so much water. It's like the fact that I got lupus, I have no idea where that came from. Let's just put it that way. The seminar really was eye opening for me. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I met with the surgeon. He said, get uh, the gastric sleeve. I wanted the gastric bypass, but the gastric sleeve was better for people who take pills because of the absorption. So he recommended that, and at least for where I went, they make you see a psychologist and a nutritionist. And when I met with the psychologist, they ask you real questions. They'll ask you, do you have an eating disorder? What's your relationship with food like? And I kid you not, if I would have gone through weight loss surgery maybe two or three years ago, it wouldn't have worked the way it has now. If you want to go through weight loss surgery and do all these things, it is not a quick fix. It is not easy. You still have to put in the work. It is just a tool that aids you through it. I ended up going through the surgery. Um, the psychologist approved me. The nutritionist approved me. And I was so nervous. And I did a two-week pre-op diet. That was a, a 
look into what my life was going to be for a couple of months. Oh my gosh, was it hard. I had to drink three protein shakes a day. I was hungry. I was like, oh my gosh. And I remember the day of the surgery, I was feeling so nervous and anxious. And the surgeon came up to me and he said, how are you doing? Like, um, we're going to take good care of you. I promise. Like, because you're a PD patient, this is going to be so smoothly. And actually, this is a fun fact for people that have PD dialysis. There are still doctors that are a little bit old school where, where if you will do PD, they'll tell you, oh, you have to go on hemo temporarily. That's not the case. And, and my surgeon was actually, I wish I could put a catheter in everybody when I do this surgery. Because, I mean, if you think about it, right, they cut your stomach. There's probably some crusty blood in there. There's probably some disgusting stuff in there. You do that dialysis, it flushes it out for you and it cleans. And I only took pain medication for two days after the, the operation. Four days later, I was on a baby shower. It's such a, an amazing experience. And I remember being on the surgery bed and I cried. But not at, if, if, like fear, I cried because I knew my life was going to change. And then just two months after the, getting the surgery, I got back on the list and it was right before Christmas. And, and it was, you know, mm-hmm. it was crazy. I think I was talking with you, Marlena. You told me, let me know. Let me know if you get back on the list. And five minutes after, I get a phone call from the transplant center and they say, congratulations, you're back on the list. I was like, what? Like, I did it. You know, after six months of being on hold, thank you, thank you so much. You know, it was, I cried so hard. I was like, yes, we're going to get a kidney. And and I just want to say, like, one last thing with weight loss surgery. Um, if you have a similar experience to me, I have noticed that it has improved my levels, my kidney levels. I no longer take blood pressure medication. I no longer take binders. I don't have potassium problems. I don't have phosphorus problems, no calcium problems. I have so much freedom with food now. Um, I don't even have to do as many dialysis treatments as I used to because I'm not filling up with toxins as often. And I feel more energy and I'm feeling good. And I have more resistance, which is crazy. I'm like, heck yeah, let's go up these stairs. It's, I don't know. It's amazing. It's been a, a, an amazing experience. So highly recommend it. That's all I'm going to say. I remember going on, um, for you all may not know, Melanie has a TikTok and I saw the video saying she got back on the transplant list and I swear I cried with you. Golness, I'm wondering if you can kind of quickly explain the different types of weight loss surgery and then maybe give some suggestions to people who are struggling, whether they can or cannot get one of those surgeries. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just want to start by applauding both Carol and Melanie because w- both of what you experienced is not easy, right? I think you both had you both had to lose weight, had two very different experiences, but one was not easier than the other. It just it takes so much, right? And you both are are just incredible because it takes time. You need support. I just want to applaud both of you for that. So um, weight loss surgery, yeah, and Melanie kind of touched a little bit on on two, right? So there are two primary surgeries that are now done, um, the gastric sleeve and then the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. The gastric sleeve is considered um, a a um, non-malabsorptive surgery, meaning that there's not a malabsorption component to the weight loss. So, and that Melanie kind of alluded to that when she talked about needing to take the pills and being able to absorb the pills. And so 
basically with a sleeve surgery, what they do is a, a portion of the stomach is removed. So almost like a sleeve of the stomach is, is removed. And so you're just essentially left with a smaller um, pouch for food to, to go into. So overall, um, food intake is reduced. There's some changes with your hormones too, in terms of like your fullness and satiety hormones. Um, but, but overall it's more, it's referred to as a more restrictive surgery versus a malabsorptive surgery. Whereas the ruin Y gastric bypass um, is considered a restrictive and uh, malabsorptive surgery because not only is a portion of the stomach removed, but the, a portion of the intestine is removed and rerouted um, to basically um, bypass some of the intestine where uh, nutrients are absorbed. So the less you absorb, the less weight you gain essentially. So you're eating less and absorbing less. In terms of transplant, there is a lot of studies that have looked at is there one that's preferred over the other for transplant recipients or the people that are trying to qualify for transplant. And pretty much, I think the consensus is that um, the sleeve is recommended because we don't wanna risk any malabsorption after transplant, right? We wanna make sure that you absorb all those medications that you have to take. But also with people that have kidney disease in general, we already know that you are at a higher risk of having iron deficiency, right? Because of the kidney disease process itself and vitamin D deficiency, right? And these are some of the things that are even are heightened with um, Y gastric bypass. So the preference is sleeve so that you don't have further iron deficiency and, and those vitamin deficiencies. Overall, the weight loss with gastric bypass is more than what you might observe with the sleeve, but not always, right? It just, um, you know, people still experience substantial weight loss um, with, with a sleeve and it's, you know, a little less um, invasive and the preference for transplant. So for potential donors, is surgery something that um, a transplant center would consider or are they, do they prefer, you know, the, the longer, you know, route? Yeah. You know, there's not a preference. Um, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind with surgery is that it's surgery, right? So it's going to take longer. We would want typically what we would want to see with donors that we have had that have undergone, undergone the surgery route is we want to, um, we want to wait until their weight loss has stabilized before we do the transplant surgery because we want their overall nutrition status and their health to be stabilized before we put them under another surgery. So it may um, prolong the process, right, of getting that transplant surgery done. But I think that, you know, I think sometimes there is this, um, there is this negative connotation with which weight loss method people choose. Like, oh, did you do it with diet and exercise alone or did you need to take pills or did you need to take um you know or have surgery and it's like it's been viewed as one is better than the other but everybody's body is different and everybody's journey is different and i think it's great that we have so many options to help people and i really think that people need to be evaluated on an individual basis to figure out what if, what is going to work for them and it's not that one is better than the other it's just everybody's body is different and people are in larger bodies for different reasons. So it's not exactly like you said, Melanie, people aren't just sitting around eating ice cream and pizza and it's, that, that's not the case. Weight and obesity are very, very complex disease states, right? So we have to remember that. And just like we have different treatment options 
for different diseases, we have different treatment options for obesity. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to shift over to Carol, though. And I would wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about your donation and what it was like, you know, being able to give that gift to your husband. Oh, I seriously tear up every time I tell this story and we're coming up on four years post-transplant. But I'd love to say that in addition to the weight loss that I did, that was a gift to myself, being able to give this gift of a better life to my husband and potentially in the long run saving his life. It was just such a emotional and such a spiritual thing to go through. I think I got the better end of the deal. And as an added bonus, I get to look at my husband every day and his kidney function at his last round of testing was actually a little bit better than mine. (laughs) He's at 80% kidney function. And I think I was coming in at my anniversary at 78%. So watching him every day and just being able to give that gift of life was, was such a huge, huge thing for me. Without a doubt, I think it changed every aspect of my life. Um, I approach life as a precious gift every single day. I value my marriage. I value my family relationships because this wasn't just me and my husband, right? It was our entire extended family walked through this journey. My 90-year-old mother-in-law and my sister-in-law flew in from New Jersey to be there for our surgery. We did our surgery, thank goodness, pre-COVID, and we had a waiting room full of people. There had to have been 20 people in that waiting room waiting for us to go through this journey. And that part of, I do uh, mentoring with the National Kidney Foundation for potential living donors. And I love to share these stories of being able to do that and being able to give that gift of life. And the knowledge that we are so short on kidneys to give to people that are in need of transplant. There is no way that deceased donors will ever be able to keep up. And you add to the fact that a living donor is so much better than a deceased donor, right? We've been talking in this podcast about, you know, the journey to get there. And I think living donors that get to the end point and are able to donate are the healthiest people on the planet, right? Because in addition to making sure that your BMI is good, you're put through this whole rigor of tests, everything from heart to kidney function, all of it is checked. So when you're walking in that door to donate that kidney, you know that you have no underlying health conditions. And I think if more people knew that and were able to share that with people, you only need one, right? My husband and I do the kidney walk every year and our team's name is share your spare. Give the other one away. Let's be that person that's able to give that gift. And I get not everyone can qualify for it just because it is so rigorous. But there are a lot of people out there that can qualify it. And I will say in the mentoring that I do, there are two of the biggest concerns that people bring up to me is 
I don't think I'm going to qualify because I'm overweight and I don't know if I can financially afford to take time off from work to donate. And I think if we can remove those two obstacles from people, we would have more living donors stepping up and we would have less people on the transplant list waiting for a deceased donor. That is such a good point. And I would like to share with our listeners that National Kidney Foundation has launched the Living Donor Circle of Excellence, where we're trying to encourage companies to give living donors that paid time off so that they can give that life-saving gift. So thank you so much, Carol, for sharing that. And I just love the image of you and your husband doing the kidney walks and sharing your spare. It's beautiful. So as we're kind of coming to the end, I was wondering if I could get tips from each of you for people who may be struggling to lose weight. And let's start with Gomez. Yes, I think remind yourself that you are not, you have not done something wrong, that it's not your fault that you are overweight and have weight to lose. Just always remind yourself of that. And because I think that's sometimes something that gets people down, like they feel like they've done something wrong. And if you did not do anything wrong, this is your body and be open to support um, and ask for and advocate for yourself. You don't have to figure it out on your own. There are people that specialize in this. And remember that weight loss takes time and um, and that it's going to take more than one visit. So, for example, if you decide to establish with a dietitian to work with them, you know, studies show that success is like 14 visits over six months. Right because you're going to encounter obstacles. And most often I tell people, I'm not gonna tell you things you don't already know. You're the expert in your body, but what I can do is support you and keep you accountable with your goals and be there to help you problem solve when you run into situations that you don't know what to do with. So find support, advocate for yourself to get support and just always remind yourself, you did not do anything wrong. This is not something that is your fault. Yeah, I just want to say that all bodies are beautiful. I wholeheartedly believe that and that weight loss shouldn't be a punishment for yourself oh, ever. Absolutely. absolutely. And and just one thing to add, because Melanie mentioned this and, and you said punishment, your relationship with food is the most important thing. We cannot survive without food and we eat food for so many reasons other than nutrition and weight, right? Food is social, food is cultural, food is, there's just so much that comes with food. So whatever you decide to do for your weight loss journey, make sure it's something that keeps you happy because food is important and we don't want food to ever be something that is a negative or brings on anxiety, right? Food is meant to bring us pleasure and happiness. So it's finding that happy balance. Yeah. Um, Melanie, do you have any tips? Um, Yeah. So... I would say same thing where fixing a relationship with food and I just want to um, share like my experience really quick. Uh, growing up, I did have that toxic diet culture mentality, right? I tried everything you could think of, everything to try and lose weight. And I feel like my my mind shifted when I started to educate myself and, and get in contact with nutritionists that understood my disease and understood how I am and and um, a lot of people with kidney disease know that there's restrictions with your diet, right? Especially in the beginning, you have to be very careful with what you put into your body. And I remember one day I told myself, you know what? 
I'm sick and tired of having this toxic diet culture in my mind. What can I do to, to I don't know, rewire my brain? And I would give into what we call temptations, into the food. So if one day I was craving cookies, I was going to have a cookie. You know, why not? What's the worst that can happen? I have one cookie, you know, or if one day I was craving pasta, I would have the pasta. Um, but still being obviously monitoring my salt consumption and things that I couldn't eat. But I started to say, okay, like before I would have been like, oh, no, 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 this isn't healthy. This isn't healthy. I shouldn't be eating this. Oh, my gosh. But then guess what would happen if I didn't give in to that one cookie? Days later, I'll get I'll have five cookies, you know, and that's just how I I personally rewired my brain to the point that eventually I'm not craving the cookie all the time anymore because I'm finally giving my body what it's been wanting. Right. What I've been craving, what I've been suppressing for so long. Now, I don't look at food as being bad unless it's like bad for your kidneys, you know, like I don't recommend drinking alcohol or having dark sodas, you know, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think definitely fixing your relationship with food and baby steps, um, even with weight loss surgery, which is an aid, weight loss surgery, weight loss in general is not linear. You will have months where you're going to plateau where you're not going to see the scale move and actually throw away the scale. It's not even with the scale. It's your clothes. The weight will say something, but my clothes say something completely different. I'm like, what? You know, you're the inches you're burning off. Anyways, and then, I don't know, with, with weight loss, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but don't think about it for aesthetic reasons. Think about it for health reasons. And, and that's why, although I was very upset when I couldn't get on the transplant list because of my weight, I understood. I mean, being obese, you technically are in a constant state of inflammation. I have lupus. I want to help not get inflamed again. I want to help, you know, my body get better and better. And my personal journey, right? Everybody's different. My personal journey having gone through weight loss surgery and having fixed my relationship with food, I believe has something to do with why now I've removed a bunch of medication. I have a happier relationship with food. I feel better and I'm looking forward to the future because I know I like getting this surgery gave me a second chance at life. And that's, that's what it feels like. Eating healthy, it's a lifestyle change. And now as I'm also trying to work on intuitive eating, eating when I'm hungry and stopping when I'm feeling full. I'm noticing, like you said, the inches are coming off, not necessarily like pounds, but I feel better and I can exercise more because I feel better and I'm full. So thank you for sharing that. And Carol, I would like to get your take on this too. Yeah, a lot of what's already been said. Um, and I would say, find a program that works for you. There are a whole host of different ways to lose weight. Find one that works for you. And if you try one and it doesn't work, try a different one. Um, I got into keto simply because my daughter-in-law was doing keto to get ready for their wedding. And it was working for her. I thought, well, it's working for her. I'm going to give it a try and see if it works. And if not, what's my backup plan? I would say ask for support when you need it. Be open with people. I think there's a lot of shame in saying I'm on a diet or I'm trying to lose weight. I was very open. And when I found when I was very open, people were not offering me food directly, which was, it, it, we get into this cultural thing, right? Where it's like rude to say no or to turn something down. 
when I was open and honest with people, they just didn't offer it to me. It was there if I wanted it on my own, but nobody was forcing it on me. And I would say, don't measure your weight loss against someone else. Because someone else is able to drop five pounds in two weeks doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be able to do that. And I think that's unrealistic. We need to set realistic goals, individual goals. And I love the part about rewarding myself. So when I was on my journey, I started in June and I went through the following February. And in between there, we had holidays, right? We had family gatherings. And I did indulge occasionally, but in moderation, just like we're talking about, instead of 10 cookies, right? I only had one Christmas cookie. When my son got married, I had a piece of wedding cake, not multiple pieces of wedding cake. And that for me, and that's that part where I was talking about earlier, there's a psychological aspect. It's our relationship with food. And it, for me, it was also, if I didn't lose a pound in a week, oh, I'm failing, therefore I'm now gonna eat whatever I wanna eat. That's a failure on my part. I need to keep telling myself, don't give in. Just because you're not getting that instant gratification, keep going, keep plugging away and use the rewards when I met my goals is kind of what I was doing, right? I would set a goal, 20 pounds, the first 20 pounds, right? Here's my goal. And I tried not to reward always with food either. It might be a new pair of shoes, right? It might be a night on the town with my husband. It might be a set of concert tickets, but the rewards, Previously for me, if I lost weight, the reward was food. Well, that's counterintuitive when you think about it. It just kind of prolongs that. That's amazing advice. I want to thank you all so much. This was a beautiful conversation, and I hope our listeners really feel inspired and you know good about themselves hearing how you you know explained your relationship with food. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was so, honestly, so amazing hearing both your stories and both of your pieces of advice for people are just like, they're just right on because those are the important things. It's not, you need to cut all these things. It's just, it's different for everyone and it's what works for you and, and just, you know, figuring out like where you can still fit in the things that you enjoy. Like everything you guys touched on is just, like, yes, I just couldn't stop nodding along. So, yeah. It was a pleasure meeting all of you. Melanie, best of luck finding that donor. I know, Melanie, I need to start following you on social media. So, I mean, both of you so inspirational, but I'm rooting for you. I want to hear when you have that transplant, too. Thank you. No, thank you, guys. You guys are amazing. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening. Do you have any questions? Email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcasts at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.